News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. According to the United Nations, they say more than a million Ukrainians have now fled the country. Where are they all going? A good number of them, more than half, have gone to Poland. And that's where we find Global's Mike Armstrong this morning. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. What is the refugee situation like there? Yeah, well, we've been visiting uh, border crossings and refugee processing centers. And I'll be honest, when you stand there, you don't necessarily get a feel for the scale. It's a steady trickle. But when you consider all the buses, the cars, the trains, the uh, and the people flooding all the different border crossings, the numbers are gigantic. Uh, according to the Polish border guard, 575,000 people have come to this country. Yesterday alone, about 95,000 people crossed. That was actually down a little bit from Monday when uh, about 100,000 people crossed in one day. Now, this country has a sizable uh, Ukrainian population, so a lot of people are staying with family and friends. But there are also shelters being set up across the country in places like sports centers, things like that. And a lot of Polish citizens who've simply come forward and are housing Ukrainians in private homes. Yeah, we see some of that footage where people are just being kind of met at the train station or met at the border crossing. So is that actually what's happened? Just everyday Polish people are saying, here, I want to help? It does happen. It is happening on occasion. Uh, also, when uh, refugees get off and they arrive, at, for, they go to a train station, for example, they can get free train uh, passage basically anywhere they want to go in the country. And even further from that, a lot of countries have just said, if you're Ukrainian refugee, uh, you can basically have free tickets anywhere you want to go uh, to several countries in this region. Interesting. Now, you also, Mike, met an Alberta woman yesterday in Poland who's trying to help people. What is she doing? Why did she, is she, did she go there for this? It's a pretty incredible story, actually. Her name was uh, Heidi Bombach. She's from uh, Bentley, Alberta. She's a farmer with Ukrainian heritage, and she said that's what drew her here. Uh, she's been watching the news, and she just wanted to help. She actually met a stranger uh, who set her up with what she thought were going to be some orphans that she could perhaps help eventually get to Canada, something like that. When the orphans showed up, they were actually with their mothers. So she's actually rented a, a small one-bedroom apartment, and she is helping uh, four adults stay there with five very young children. I'll tell you, we were in the apartment standing up. It was cramped. I don't know how they can all lie down. And the interesting part of that story also is how she's supporting it uh, to get here. And the first part of her expenses, she actually just sold a load of grain from her farm uh, to finance it. And then since then, as friends of hers have seen what she's doing, they've been e-transferring her money just to help out. And she literally at one point said, you know what, every time I check my bank account, I've got more money than the time before. Well, it just tells you, I think, how engaged people are with this story. And also on yeah. that front, um, we know that Ukrainian forces are outnumbered when it comes to Russia and that Ukraine had put out the call for people to help them, for foreigners to join them and help. Are people actually doing that? Yeah, the Ukrainian president put that call out last week, called it a sort of international legion. Uh, he actually spoke about it this morning in his address from Kiev. He said about 16,000 people have signed up. Now, he referred to that number as, quote, uh, coming to help. So they're certainly not here. That does include dozens from Canada. Uh, Global's actually spoken to some of them. Some of those volunteers are showing up at the border. Uh, others are registering at embassies in their country. Uh, now, getting people into the country, that's one challenge. 
those foreign fighters aren't necessarily trained. So that's another, you know, how much they can actually help on the battlefield stands to be seen. Uh, but it does help sort of with morale and support and basically the, the information war that's being waged. It's really interesting. The Ukrainian government every day is putting out stories like this, you know, people coming to help and also stories about Ukrainians themselves who, instead of fleeing, are staying and picking up weapons to defend the country. We've seen stories about uh, boxing stars. We've seen stories about tennis players. And today, actually, there's one about a ballet star who's fighting for the government. Wow. Okay. And I understand that uh, Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign affairs minister, was also in Poland yesterday, actually right where you are, right? Right in the city. Yeah. Yeah. She made a couple of stops while she was here. She met with uh, Red Cross officials. She met with the mayor of this city. We're about a half an hour from the border. So uh, a lot of refugees are coming through here. But her first stop after she landed was actually at a downtown hotel where she met with the staff from the Canadian embassy in Ukraine. Uh, they'd normally be in Kyiv. When things started getting dangerous, the uh, staff was moved to western Ukraine. When things got basically more dangerous, they moved them out of the country, and now they're working from here in this city. Um, Melanie Jolie says there are about 12,000 Canadians uh, registered uh, as being in Ukraine, and they're trying to help those people, uh, even with logistics, sort of suggesting best ways to get out. That said, in the, the last two minutes, I think I got a message from a Canadian uh, who is registered as being in Ukraine, and he says he hasn't been contacted at all. So um, perhaps the government is trying to help people who are reaching out, and, and they're helping those people with logistics. And right. by the way, I'll add, that 12,000 number is probably much lower than the actual number because not everybody registers uh, as a Canadian in Ukraine when they go there. Right. Okay, more to come. Mike, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Mike Armstrong, Global National Reporter. He is in Poland, as you heard him say there, uh, watching and, and seeing what is happening. The United Nations reporting that a million people have now left Ukraine as refugees. About half a million of them have arrived in Poland. And as Mike also pointed out, though, many of them have relatives or people that they know in Poland, so they have been taken in by them, but also the Polish uh, government and people um, responding. You, I'm sure you've seen some of those videos online too. And there is likely more to come. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about that single-use cup fee here in the city of Vancouver that has generated so much discussion. When it first came in on January the 1st, it really surprised a lot of people. It had impacts in ways that were clearly not intended. So City of Vancouver and Vancouver Council said, we are going to take another look at this. They did that last night. And so what happened? Well, let's talk about what happened. Joining us now is Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. So we still have this. We still have this uh, 25 cent cup fee and uh, despite an attempt to repeal that because it was quite clear that it wasn't working and there was a number of issues with it and myself and a number of councillors tried to have the cup fee removed and the majority of council voted against it and so now consumers will be paying the 25 cents but we have a lot of businesses that are due to COVID concerns even though the public health officials say it's fine or not willing to accept the cups their employees are nervous and we have a lot that are not offering other alternatives like cup share programs and the city has no intention to require them to do that um, for up to a year and a half. Okay but there were some modifications made were there not? There were modifications there were modifications proposed to work on such as accepting uh accepting free drinks. So if somebody is from a low income and marginalized and is given a free coffee voucher, 
for example, then those will be exempted. But it really didn't deal with the issue of low-income people that may not have a voucher for a free coffee, but simply, you know, it's punitive and can't afford the extra 25 cents. And we heard from speakers like the person from the Binners Project that works with a lot of um, low-income people, um, for example, the downtown east side who collect cups in order to expand their income and said this is a real hardship on people and uh, we would like you to repeal this fee and council didn't listen to that. We heard from small businesses like the juice truck um, uh, that said or you know this is um, doesn't make sense and it's just simply a profit center where businesses are taking in these extra funds and um, again council didn't listen to that. Okay so what do you think we should be doing here? Well, we heard loud and clear because I think everybody agrees with the goal of single-use waste and nobody wants to see those cups going into the landfill. But the, the crux came down to the fact that what we need is a lot of education and that uh, and that people are concerned about it. So, if, you know, I referenced that you're allowed to accept a customer's own cup. Um, let's educate employees that that is safe. Uh, let's let consumers know that that's safe to bring their own cups. We don't need an additional regulation and another layer of regulation when it's already permitted by provincial health to do that. So that was one thing. Um, the other one is that we're seeing a big um, increase in the cup share programs and the development and business is already picking up on that. So again, why do we need another layer of regulation? The city said, basically said, let's keep charging the 25 cents and maybe in about a year and a half, we'll study it. And if we think there's enough capacity in the industry, then we'll require businesses to have a cup share in a year and a half. And that makes absolutely no sense for me. So again, I would continue the education um, on businesses to encourage them to adopt those practices. But right now they can take the 25 cents and they don't have to do anything with it. They don't have to spend it on climate initiatives. And that's the part that really gets, I think, a lot of people out there is what is this supposed to do? If we have no alternatives, it's just forcing people to pay this money. Well, that's exactly it. And one of my council colleagues actually told a story in council yesterday and said he was on his way to City Hall. He was walking along. He felt he thought, oh, I'll have a coffee. I went and he said, I have no problem paying the 25 cents. But the point is that didn't change his behavior. He didn't, you know, he didn't bring his reusable cup. You know, he didn't purchase a cup share program. He just simply paid the 25 cents. Um, and he told that story and then voted for the bylaw. So this is so fraught with holes. There were questions, for example, are gift cards going to be exempt from the fee if free vouchers are? Um, staff were not able to answer that question. Could be potentially a big loophole. And they said, yeah, that's a good idea. We should exempt gift cards. Well, that means that you or I could game the system, go out and buy ourselves, preload a gift card with you know $25 or $50 for coffee um, and keep buying our coffee that way. It was There's so many loopholes that just did not make sense. Yeah, that actually doesn't make any sense at all. So essentially, there was a couple of carve-outs, but it continues then as is. It continues as, for the most part. It continues exactly as as is. As is. Uh, the one part that council said, instead of um, requiring that you can that you will mandate these businesses to bring, let people bring their own cup tomorrow. Let's wait and do that at the end of July and still continue to collect the 25 cents. So, yeah, I, I, I'm having difficulty talking about this because it's just flabbergasted me that we heard so clearly across residents from small businesses themselves um, and from people who are representing low-income folks that this was disproportionately impacting them. Um, and council said, no, no, let's plunge ahead. Let's not admit that we have a, made a challenge here, that there were some hiccups, that this is really well-intentioned. But sometimes 
you need to pivot and acknowledge that it's not working and there's maybe another way to get at this goal of reducing the single-use cups. But that was just not the conversation that happened in council chambers yesterday. No, it was not. I followed along with some of that and I saw some councillors voted against it, but it did eventually get voted for. So it continues on for all the people out there who are frustrated. I also want to ask you about the uh, public safety virtual crime forum that you have. That's going on tonight. Is that right? That is happening tonight uh, online on Zoom uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, it's a chance for people to have their say about the really significant uh, rise in uh, violent issues that we're seeing in the city and just concerns about crime in general. Uh, people can register. We've got a website set up. Uh, they can still sign up if they'd like to join that. It's at shaping, uh, sorry, speaking of van. V-A-N, speaking of van.ca. Um, it'll be a two-hour forum, um, most of the time devoted to just hearing from residents, but we have a great panel with Deputy Chief Howard Chow, uh, harm recovery advocate Guy Felicella, um, and Nolan Marshall, who is the CEO of the downtown Vancouver BIA. What kind of response have you gotten when the news first came out that, okay, you're going to be hosting this public safety forum, you want to hear from people, but what kind of response did you get? The response has been overwhelming. I think it was um, just relief that there was acknowledgement that we have a significant issue in our city and not dismissing their concerns because I think, you know, the mayor's now famous clip when he was asked and he said, I feel safe um, in the city of Vancouver. And that just struck such a bad chord with people because it's not, it was dismissive of how people are feeling and it's not reflecting people's real experience and concerns that they are either they, their friends or family are now experiencing um, these attacks. Sometimes they are changing their behavior. Um, they, people are leaving neighborhoods. Um, we are seeing small businesses having trouble attracting staff. Um, it's rippling across our city in so many ways. And so I think it's time for us to have this conversation and give people a chance to be heard. Do you wish that more councillors, perhaps, and the mayor himself would participate in this? Um, I would welcome them. I, I would welcome anybody to participate. I think that we this is these are big issues that we have, and it's going to take all of us rowing in the same direction um, and you know getting on board uh, to address the challenges. So um, if they would like to participate, we'd welcome them. Um, and I think that more broadly outside of the forum, um, we need to prioritize public safety in a way that this council hasn't. And so you don't think this council is taking public safety seriously enough? I don't. Um, I don't. And I think it's part of the reason. I think we're now at the point where we're sort of signaling this anything goes type of perspective in the city of Vancouver. And we've lost the balance here. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to achieve and bring back. Um, there's going to be some significant heavy lifting to do in terms of working across all levels. It's the court systems. It's um, lack of a gap in facilities for mental health and addiction support. It's it's um, support for policing in general, disdain for law and order in the city. I think it's a whole number of things. So, uh, no, I don't think that this council has signaled that it's a priority at all. Well, I look forward to hearing what people tell you tonight at the forum. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Have a great morning. You too. That's Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor. She is one of a few councillors who voted for repealing the disposable cup bylaw when it came up for a revisit at last night's council meeting. It was defeated. So the bylaw will continue pretty much as is with a few little carve outs in there. But it's just astonishing, right? I know people who've been upset by it and think this is ridiculous. Can't we revisit this? Can wonder how can they just think that they want to continue on? They do, apparently. They think they're going to look at it again in a year, year and a half. And again, I'll just tell you, that's why so many people are frustrated with Vancouver City Council these days. Public Safety Forum is another good example of that. 
We know what the mayor said when he was asked whether or not he would attend, right? That he doesn't, his communications person said the mayor doesn't concern himself with the day-to-day work of others on council. Sure, yeah, that's exactly what this is. That is not. So if that's happening this afternoon, four to six, uh, we'll obviously be covering that too, because we want to hear what people are saying about the feeling of safety in their neighborhoods. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, of course, we're talking about gas prices this morning, given the price at the pump. And if you had to get some gas or you do this morning, you are in for a bit of a sticker shock. And my question to you is, is this change your behavior gas prices? When you see what's happening out there, are you rethinking the way you use your vehicle uh, if you don't have an EV? Or are you thinking, you know what, I'm going to have to do something differently because of how high those gas prices are? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. And we're also hearing that what you think is high now could even go even higher in the next few days. Joining us now is Dan McTagg, who's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Good morning, Dan. Uh, yes, unless you're having to visit a gas station, Simi. Uh, anyway, right? get around I- this I filled up, I topped off my tank yesterday. I was only at half and I topped off yesterday at $1.81 and 24 hours later, I can't believe I think that's a deal. Yeah, well, look, if you uh, had waited until Saturday, uh, that 181 is going to look a lot like possibly 203 or even 204 a litre. I, I, didn't, I can't even say that. I've never had, to, you know, the two number in front of anything. Uh, I'm used to the know the uh, the one dollar range but yeah we're going to see an increase tomorrow uh in the order of uh, uh seven cents a liter going from um, uh actually eight cents a liter sorry seven cents a liter one uh 93.9 uh all the way up to a uh, dollar uh two dollars and one cent a liter just slightly below that and saturday uh, i mean it's the market still hasn't settled yet but it looks like at least a two maybe even a three cent a liter in uh, increase so you know, 204, 203, 205, potentially by uh, uh, by, by a Saturday uh, morning. Now, Dan, I had an interesting email from somebody saying, you know, who is making this money? Where is this money uh, going? So maybe you could explain to us, like, where is this jump oh coming from? Well, obviously, if you're, if you're holding on to oil, if you happen to be an oil producer, you're making money hand over fist because you were, you know, charging $75 or getting $75 uh, a barrel for oil at the beginning of January. You're now getting what 100 and uh, I haven't looked at the markets lately, but 110, 111 dollars a barrel. So you're making money there. Uh, you're obviously making money uh, if you happen to hold American assets because you're using the Canadian, the American exchange, which is stronger than the Canadian dollar. Uh, but of course, money is being made right across uh, right across the board. Um, it doesn't really matter who you are, except for gas station owners who don't really get anything uh, of advantage to this. Uh, consumers, gas station owners are the are the losers here. And uh, at the end of all of this, uh, governments, um, Ottawa, for instance, five percent GST added to this increased price uh, are picking up quite a windfall. Um, you know, uh, people in the carbon credit market are doing very well. Uh, $486 a carbon credit, that's 17 cents a litre. Not bad money if you can get it, and if you have the technology to do it, because uh, refineries are required to uh, buy those carbon credits to offset. Um, but all, ultimately, it's coming down to this. Whether it's Saudi Arabia, uh, whether it, uh, it happens to be members of OPEC, whether it happens to be shale producers in the United States or oil producers here in Canada, the message has been, see me, for the past five to ten years, no more. We don't want you to produce. You remember last May? Yeah. 
you and I covered, uh, you know, the Energy Information Agency saying no, no more oil production. Stop it. We don't. The world doesn't need any more. Uh, three weeks later, Fadi Birol, the uh, uh, the uh, the head, was now begging OPEC. We need to produce more. We we didn't realize that demand was going to go through the roof and that uh, supply is actually much lower than we thought. So right. they're sitting on their on their on their pile of uh, of, uh, of oil and saying, uh, if you don't want any more oil, no problem. We're just going to make money sitting back and not providing anymore. Right, but Dan, that's also the irony of this, though, too, though, isn't it? If your prices get to this, this is when people start to change their behavior and they may say, you know what, I don't want to use that product anymore because of the price. I'm not an economist, but uh, there is, uh, you know, a, a point at which people don't have much of a choice. And it's not the fuel that I'm worried about, <clears throat> because uh, see, what went up was diesel even faster than gasoline. And that affects uh, the prices uh, that allow our farmers to do their work. It uh, pays for, uh, and it is the price we use for fertilizer. It is the price we use for forestry. It is the price we uh, determines the price on mining. This is a critical fluid uh, fuel and it's not one of those things where you can be optional and say you know this is non-discretionary so i can i can punt it the knock-on effect or the trickle down or the cascade if i call it whatever you want is uh, is going to be pretty damaging uh, to world economies and canada will not uh, will not emerge from this unscathed so i think we can we are curbing our behavior uh, but you know is it enough to basically say hey let's go back to where we were last year during the COVID period uh, and uh, go into what is an effectively energy lockdowns. I don't think we can go there. And certainly the economy can't go in that route either, especially our ships, our trains and our uh, transport trucks. Do you think anything is going to change in terms of production? Um, well, production can change. And, and, and perhaps the best example is not because, you know, I'm waving the Canadian flag, but we have the third largest provable reserves in the world and we can ramp up production faster than most, uh, but we don't have takeaway capacity. That's pipelines. So at the moment I mentioned pipelines, half the po- folks you have listening are just going to run for the <laughs> run for their commentary. Right. I think we have to have an adult discussion about our climate objectives while at the same time recognizing that uh, the world needs a lot more Canadian oil and gas. Like it or not, the alternative is uh, Russia, Iran, and other unsavory countries like Venezuela. I don't think we should be reliant on them, and we can see that the world is becoming far more dangerous as a result of our willingness to sort of turn our back on fossil fuels. I think we'll get there, but we're not going to get there because uh, some politicians have said we're going to cut off all vehicles at a certain period. So, I think that's critical. We need to be smart about this. Okay, so then, Dan, looking at the markets right now, though, and seeing what is happening with those oh, yeah. uh, crude oil prices, how, 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 what do you see for the next couple of weeks in terms of this fluctuation in prices? Are they going to go up there to that $2 a liter and stay there? I think they're going to stay there, Simi. I don't see this coming down. Uh, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And by better, I mean, you know, res- resolution uh, in uh, uh, Russia needs to back off and... Uh, I mean, kudos to the government, uh, Christia Freeland, uh, for taking the charge, the lead on this and going after Russia. We need to cut off Russia's ability to make money uh, on oil and gas. And uh, it's not going to be an easy thing. There's going to be sacrifices and it's going to be very painful. But I think nothing compared to, you know, what our friends uh, are suffering in, in Ukraine. So for that reason, I think we're going to see prices continue to rise Um and we're heading into that period of time where governments are going to, have to make a decision. Should they not postpone perhaps an increase on the carbon tax? Uh, we're going to be shifting from winter to summer gasoline. That's another four or five cents a liter. Although in BC, we're already starting to see that uh, is already introduced. So you may not see that big impact. But 
summer demand is around the corner. And I'm not just talking gasoline. I'm talking uh, aviation fuel and other things. So uh, I think we're going to hit 215, maybe even 220 before things start to taper off and we start to uh, come back down. One of the things we could do, and I'm hoping happens, the Canadian dollar finds its footing. Because frankly, in your dealing $100 oil, there's no way in the sun the Canadian dollar should be trading at a 27% discount to the U.S. dollar. That's critical because all of our commodities, including food, mining, forestry, take your pick, is priced in U.S. dollars. We need to find ways to become the petrodollar again one way or another. All right. We'll see what happens. Dan, thank you so much for that this morning. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wish it was another topic. Maybe yeah, when it drops, right. we'll do it again. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, yes, we'll do it that time too. That's Dan McTagg, who's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. So that's my question to you this morning. When you see that price at the pumps and Dan says it's going to hit $2 a litre and likely stay there for a few weeks, is this the change your behavior type of gas prices? And if so, how are you changing your behavior? This is Mornings with Simi. Undoubtedly, your grocery bill has become more expensive. You have noticed it. The, out of the latest Angus Reid poll on food prices, it said that four out of five people say they have changed their food buying habits. And I know I have. Our Raji Silhal joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yes, I have too. And when I'm cooking, it's easier for me to pivot with meal planning if I'm like going through the aisles and I see that something's way more than I wanted to spend. And, you know, like I could have a stew in mind. I see some fresh tomatoes and go, okay, I'm going to pass on them because they're too expensive this week. But I find when I bake and I love to bake, that's where I've noticed some price hikes that are just enormous to the point where I wonder, like, okay, if I'm using good ingredients, you know, flour that's not made with fertilizer, my cookies are suddenly really expensive to make. It's cheaper for me to just buy ones that are already uh, prepackaged and that kind of thing. So I thought bakeries must be encountering the same problem. Well, it did not take me very long to find bakers who agree. Yesterday, Fanny Lamb, she owns uh, Oh Sweet Day Bake Shop. She made a post on her bakery's page about the challenge of trying to produce quality products and keep the price affordable for customers as well as treat her staff properly. And it's become a lot harder in this economy with all the rising costs. I am the one who's responsible for all the infantry, all the ingredients for the base shop, right? So I do the shopping every day. So I know like the increment was crazy, at least 20%. And some items, for example, vegetable oils, we, the price has been raised almost 100%. Another problem is the shipping issue. Um, we used to be able to get our ingredients from a wholesale supplier, but now even for something really basic, for example, we do cheesecake, so we need a lot of cream cheese. A lot of times they won't be able to deliver the next day because they are not from local. It's shipped from the States. Um, because of the shipping issue now, sometimes they take more than a week. And what's even worse is a lot of times they don't even know when they will arrive. So we have to go out to other grocery store to do shopping. Um, what's happening is we have to pay a lot more when we have to shop in such a small quantity. That must make quite a difference to their prices. And I heard from some tradespeople about gas prices and the impact that's having. They pass the cost on to the clients. So what is, what is the bakery doing? Yeah, that's typical. Well, Fanny says they've had to focus on doing bigger online orders. And she's also redesigned the layout of the kitchen so that the bakers can produce more efficiently. And that, she said, is working. It's working a lot. 
But inevitably, the customers see some of that too in their pricing. What we did to adapt to the change is um, we we have to absorb some of the costs um, ourselves, but we also try to pass the cost to customer by raising some of the price of our products. But still, like we mentioned, the inflation is we are talking about at least 20 percent, but the but the increase, but the increase, the price, the price raised on our products is less than 5%. So her increase is up 20% and then she passes only 5% increase on to customers because there's a point where customers just, they won't pay more, right? I also spoke with Nav Sidhu. She owns Sweet and Savory, an online bake store. She's a Red Seal baker. She's a cooking college instructor and she specializes in good quality baked goods uh, made from local ingredients. And she sells at farmer's markets too. She told me she's seen her flour costs double in some cases. And although her business is going, uh, like I guess, technically well because she sells out of her wares and she's got a good reputation, she struggles to pay herself minimum wage. And her customers get passed on some of the increase in cost of ingredients. But ultimately, she said there is a limit to that. You know, at the end of the day, for me, it's so important that I give my customers the best possible products, the best possible baked goods I can. That means using the best ingredients. And it does, the cost of um, ingredient does increase. But I'm kind of feeling, do I pass this to my customers, this cost? And because you want your products to be affordable, but at the same time, as a business owner, you want to pay yourself a proper wage as well. So this is a tough line. Like I have already increased my prices a little bit last year, but this year I'm not sure if I can do that. Everyone is struggling right now, you know, with the, uh, with the rising cost of food or like every single thing uh, you can imagine right now. So, um, you know, sometimes like when I go to a superstore, I see a pumpkin pie there and the pie is $4 or sometimes is $5. Like how can they even sell that pie for 4 to $5? I can break down from a flour to a, um, uh, to an ingredient inside. So when I make a pie, I have an organic flour, the pumpkin that is grown maybe a kilometer away from my house, um, organic pumpkin that I cook and puree and the eggs from the local farm. So when you add up all these costs, the price of my pumpkin pie is gonna be 25 to $30 compared to uh, $5 from the store. And sometimes people say that, oh, how come, how can the pie will be, the pie is so expensive. But then you have to really, I guess you have to educate your customers. You have to educate what ingredients you're using and why the cost is rising. Um, I think that's one of the thing we can do as a, a business person or a baker. Okay, that is, I think, the perfect point that she just made there, Raji, is that she has to educate the customers about what she's putting into these pies because I believe people will pay for the type of quality, clearly, that she and the care that she is taking with those ingredients. I think so. And you, you taste something that she's made. It tastes incredible. It tastes so much better than something made with just conventional stuff or, or that cuts corners and uses strange oils, whereas she might use like a local grass-fed butter. Um, but it, a lot goes into, a lot of work goes into those baked goods. And then with the ingredient costs going up too, 
you have to think, okay, well, of course I should be paying a little bit more for this if I'm going to get something like this at a farmer's market and whatnot. But Simi, this is also an issue that I have seen uh, over the pandemic in restaurants that I have frequented um, on a regular basis. And I've noticed the quality go down during the pandemic and uh, chefs and staff have told me, uh, yeah, it's because food costs have gone up. And so don't you think yeah. we are also having to cut corners um, behind the scenes? I'm sure they are. Yeah, everybody's trying to scramble. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there. Yes, we're talking about increasing prices. Yes, that was food prices, but we're also talking about gas prices and whether or not what's happening at the pumps is changing your behavior in any way, shape, or form. Weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, for the first time, an Indigenous-led charity has received an endowment from the provincial government to help promote Indigenous cultural heritage revitalization. Well, what does all of that mean? We thought we'd find out this morning with the help of our next guest. It's John Hogan, who is the interim board chair for the First Peoples Cultural Foundation, also acting chief of the Lytton First Nation. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Simi. What exactly, what do we mean when we say Indigenous cultural heritage revitalization? What is that process all about, John? Well, there's many things to Indigenous cultural heritage, and we've known over time that a lot of our heritage was under threat, our cultural heritage was under threat of loss due to many factors with elders and knowledge keepers passing away. But we do know that there were many interruptions to cultural heritage through colonialism and other threats like that. Um, For a while, it was outlawed to practice many of our cultural traditions. And so how is that being worked on? What kind of work is being done to revitalize that? There's many different options for people they're doing a lot around songs dances stories people are recording some of their knowledge systems around the land their land-based practices and their skills and connections to collecting materials and being able to pass on those knowledges to younger generations One of the great examples that I heard about this had to do with something that you've, I think, worked on for quite a few years, and that's even trying to preserve the cedar kind of basket weaving of your ancestors. Yeah, that's correct, Simi. There's a good movement in place. We don't have as many basket makers as we traditionally had in the past, so the ones we do have, they're making a valiant effort to bring that knowledge system forward to the next generations. Cedar root basketry is very intense. You have to be able to go out in the land, harvest cedar roots, split them, clean them, and then have them into a uniform shape and then be able to work with that. It's very time consuming and but at the end product is very beautiful and artistic and a great expression of our cultural heritage. That must be incredibly challenging, though, to try to keep that alive and almost revive it. Yes, because there's so many distractions nowadays. There's 
people are more mobile and in the past they were more sedentary so that's one of the distractions is there's just busy lives everywhere and so this money from the provincial government that how will how will that help john what's going to happen well it will give us as indigenous people the chance to work with many communities and they would bring projects and proposals forward and try to secure and access some of the funding to help them implement things in their home communities and their home nations. Well, that would be some important work that is being done there. Now, you're also the acting chief of the Lytton First Nation. Tell me, what has that been like the past year with the devastating fires? Well, the fire as part of Climate change had a devastating effect on many of our cultural treasures in our community. We lost a lot of um, artifacts and items, photographs, and different things that pertain to cultural heritage as well. And then we know that um, going forward, we're going to have to be able to develop things that can archive and be more resistant to climate change and have them safeguarded in different manners. So, But the past seven or eight months has been very different for our community. There's a lot of things that happened through climate change in November with the atmospheric river that didn't allow many um, things to happen where they could have been more done in a time-sensitive manner, but there were many delays caused by climate change. Are you worried, John, about the impact that will have on being able to keep some of these cultural artifacts and traditions alive? Yes, because we don't know what else is out there besides the heat domes and things. There could be more flooding and other things that would have impacts to right. key areas. We did lose a lot of land in the atmospheric river in the Nicola Valley. So there's those kind of shifts that change the landscape and, and things like that. But I'm really hoping through this endowment that people are able to access and really connect to their cultural heritage because the traditional that we pass from generation to generation is going to be part of the things that keeps community strong and resilient and connected to their heritage. Yeah, that is the challenge, isn't it? John, thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, thank you and have a good day, all your listeners. This is me calling in from Snowy Manning Park. Oh, wow. Snowy Manning Park. Oh, it sounds beautiful, though, given what we've seen. Uh, John, thank you for that. That's John Hogan, who is the interim board chair of the First Peoples Cultural Foundation and acting chief of the Lytton First Nation, talking about money, a historic investment, actually, from the provincial government, $5 million endowment to the First Peoples Cultural Foundation as they try. It's the first time an Indigenous-led charity has received that kind of money from the province, hoping to help promote Indigenous cultural heritage revitalization.